Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Erica Easley-Hauser, and thank you for listening to this podcast for New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend time speaking with the author. Today, we'll be talking with historian Angela Pulley-Hudson, who's the author of a fascinating book entitled Creek Paths and Federal Roads. Indians, Settlers, and Slaves, and the Making of the American South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2010. While some historical writing styles may seem inaccessible to some readers, Angela does a wonderful job in her narrative, uncovering the complexities of race and space in the American South in the 18th and 19th centuries. She considers the historical origins and geography of creek lands and the various paths and borders established with intersections of outsiders, namely European and African Americans. I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation. Angela? Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today and to talk about your new book, Creek Paths and Federal Roads, Indians, Settlers, and Slaves, and the Making of the American South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2010. And I want to thank you just for taking the time to speak with us today. Sure. Um, I noticed, obviously, it's it's gotten a lot of attention. There's been lots of book reviews and, and academic journals. And so I'm really excited to talk about the book and certainly for our listeners to hear more about the book. Um, you know, very exciting book. I was really happy when I found it um, and read it. Um, but before we delve into getting into the book, I wanted you to just share with our readers and our listeners, rather, a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, where did you grow up? How did you come to study Creek history? Uh, and anything else that you'd like to share with us about, you know, just kind of how you came to this topic? Sure, of course. Thanks Thanks very much for inviting me and for having me on. Um, I grew up, as I say, uh, early on in, in Creek Paths. I, I grew up all over the South. Um, I'm originally from South Carolina, but I lived in Tennessee and Louisiana, uh, Alabama, Georgia, and um, so I spent a lot of my childhood traveling around the South, um, both you know my family moving from place to place and, and just sort of traveling, going on road trips and that sort of thing. Um, so in some ways, although I never envisioned that I was going to write a book about travel and, and roads and transportation, um, I'm, I guess in some ways I'm sort of uniquely suited to do it. <laughs> um, I went to, um, did my undergrad at Auburn University. I had um, a degree in English and um, and Spanish. At that time, I wasn't really interested in, in history and certainly not in American history. Um, it's always interesting, you know, how these things turn out. But at the time, I thought, oh, how boring. Everything's been done in American history. <laughs> um, so I was more interested in literature, and that's what I did my degree in. Um, and then I, I uh, did a master's in English and literature at the University of Georgia. And while I was there, I started um, working on um, Native American literature. 
and uh, really started to get fascinated with it. But I was frustrated by the fact that I didn't know enough of the history, as it turned out, <laughs> um, to really you know, make sense of um, a lot of the literature and the criticisms. So uh, I started to make a pest of myself and go and knock on doors in the history department and, and um, ask lots of questions and, and really try to sort of educate myself about American Indian history. Um, at that time, as a way of, of getting a better grasp on understanding some of the literature and literary criticism, um, when I finished my master's there, I didn't, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go on to graduate school for the PhD. So I took a job at the Digital Library of Georgia, which is um, housed there at the University of Georgia Libraries, and uh, they had just received a grant through IMLS, and um, which was which is a division of NEH. And uh, I was hired to assist with this grant, essentially to be one of the project directors. And, and our, our goal was to digitize about 2,000 manuscripts, um, historical manuscripts related to southeastern Indian history from the founding of the colony of Georgia in 1733 up through <clears throat> at least through the removal period. So. Mm. I, um, I got this job not because I had the technical skills to create a digital database, <laughs> um, and not really because I had the historical wherewithal to, to you know, explain everything about southeastern Indian history, but I had done a good bit of research on the Cherokees for my master's thesis, which included mm -hmm. a chapter on Elias Boudinot, um, the Cherokee newspaper editor. Okay. And so um, I think it was that and just my passion for the project and my, my sheer enthusiasm and unwillingness to be denied that made them hire me. <laughs> right, um, right. And it was, it was over the course of two years working there to digitize these manuscripts that were all related to Southeastern Indian history that um, I really both sort of, you know, got my training as a historian in terms of how to do archival research, but also right. it's it's where my interest in Creek history in particular uh, was born. And a lot of the questions that uh, that formed um, the dissertation and later the book Creek Paths um, originated in that two years um, sort of paid internship, really, at the mm -hmm. Digital Library of Georgia. Wow, that's fascinating. That's really a great, you know, position to kind of get a, a perspective of history and now with so much, you know, being digital and being very useful for historians, which I certainly appreciate. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, your background in literature and, and the connections with, with history. And I think you can definitely see, you know, how those sort of interests merge with the writing of your book. Uh -huh. um, I really enjoy just your, your style of writing. Um, Thank you. Especially when you begin uh, your introduction, uh, which is entitled Old Paths, New Roads, and you paint this wonderful picture, I think, for readers, um, just simply talking about this metaphor of roadways and how you're understanding this history and this, you know, Creek world that you're writing about. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how did you choose that to be sort of your metaphor for understanding this history when, you know, certainly many other historians have used, you know, the middle ground as the metaphor, uh, you know, which is uh, certainly, I think, widely known. But I really like your your metaphor and how you kind of explained it. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how sure. did you come to that? Sure, absolutely. Well, I you know, there there's been some there has been some wonderful work over the past two decades in particular, um, in American Indian history and ethno history. Um, I'm looking at space and place. Um, you know, and, and we can talk about, you know, a, a lot of folks sort of reference the so called spatial turn in the humanities and of course ethno history is, is a beneficiary of that. 
Um, but one of the things I was really interested in, uh, and it, it emerged from my intensive study of a lot of these documents when I was doing the, the digital archives, but one of the things I was most interested in is how did historic Creek people define the spaces that they inhabited? Mm-hmm. So, um, so on the one hand, the, you know, thinking about paths and pathways, it is it's a useful um, metaphor. It's a methodological mm-hmm. tool, you know, uh, that I right. use to to try and um, bring the reader into an understanding of of the interior South during this time period. Mm-hmm. But it's not merely a metaphor. Um, one right. of the things that frustrated me about some of the work on space and place, uh, not so much in American Indian history, but maybe in the, in the humanities more broadly, mm-hmm. was that a lot of times the metaphors that were being deployed uh, didn't seem to me to reflect the worldviews of the people that uh, for whom they were being deployed. So in mm. other words, you know, one of the things I wanted to avoid as a historian was coming up with a model or an approach or a metaphor that would have been alien to the people that I was writing about that wouldn't have right. that would not have resonated with them you know it might have been a useful writing tool or conceptual tool for me <laughs> and maybe even for readers but wouldn't have reflected the reality of of um people's lives in the late 18th and early 19th century south right. So in in the course of working in a lot of the materials, the the Creek materials, um, I began to see repeated references to thinking about paths and pathways. And these were both references to sort of cosmology and thinking about, um, you know, paths like a spirit's road. Um, But it was also, these were also political uh, references to the pathways that held the Creek Confederacy together. Um, for just for example, and so the more I began to see these references, the more I began to piece together that for the Creek Confederacy and, and later the Creek Nation, um, paths and pathways were were very important, very central to their understanding of the world that they inhabited in every sense of the word. Um, so so that's how the metaphor really emerged from the research itself. And it was my effort to try and reconstruct the way in which Creek people at that time um, conceived of the places that they lived and how that then framed their interactions and their understanding um, of, of diplomacy with and, and interactions with outsiders as they began to come into their territories. Okay. Yeah, you also, kind of related to that, you do a nice job with even just kind of the geographic landscape and explaining that, um, which kind of, uh, you know, leads me to the question of simply understanding sources and how you were able to kind of figure some of these things out, you know, was it, you know, through oral tradition, manuscript, I mean, or obviously a combination of both, or, you know, how did you kind of deal with, you know, just sort of unpacking some of this history with the sources that you were Finding. Sure. Well, um, a lot of the material on on trying to sort of reconstruct Creek cosmology and, and, and roughly that time period came from looking at um, stories um, that had been recorded, some aspects of the oral tradition that had been recorded. And um, you know, ethno historians struggle with with how to use some of these recorded oral histories, particularly those that are that are dated much later than the time mm-hmm. periods that we're studying. So. So I did try very hard, and particularly in, in working on that first chapter where I'm, I'm trying to articulate, um, you know, historic Creek beliefs about space, about boundaries, about travel and mobility, I did try very hard to isolate um, aspects of the oral tradition that date to roughly around the time that um, 
uh, the topics that I'm addressing in the book mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. so that I wouldn't, you know, face uh, charges of upstreaming as, as some historians um, and ethno-historians often um, find fault, you know, with using mm-hmm. later oral um, accounts to talk about earlier historical moments. Um, so that was one thing. It was both sort of kind of a strategy that I used, um, but, you know, also a challenge that I think all ethno-historians face at some point um, in our writing. One of the other kinds of sources that I used pretty extensively were um, diplomatic sources, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the kinds of journals and, um, and ancillary writings that go along with treaties. Um, mm-hmm. This is a place where uh, Creek diplomats in particular are, um, are often trying to educate their, their British, French, Spanish, and later American counterparts on on you know whose territory we are actually in <laughs> at a given moment, right? right? right and trying right. to um, you know sort of sometimes provide a bit of a history lesson as well as a geography lesson of um, whose land this is and who belongs here and um, and why. So those right. sources, although we typically turn to them to find out you know what what piece of land was ceded or what was the particular agreement in this or that treaty. Those sources can also be, you know, very useful in helping um, to to reconstruct the way in which people thought about the spaces they inhabited. Um, right. And then right. finally, one other, uh, I mean, there are many different bodies of sources that I called on, but one other source of material that was really useful was travel writing. Um, mm-hmm. And that really helped me to try and um, imagine what it was like, what it was actually like to travel on some of these paths, to travel on some of these roads as they were expanding um, into the old Southwest, uh, you know, right. to try and, and get a feeling for what it was like to travel through this space. Um, mm-hmm. And those are often really fascinating works, too, so it's easy to kind of get um, to get enamored with them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, that sort of relates to, I mean, I think even broader um, issues, I think certainly for, you know, historical writing is trying to sort of really write this history about agency and understanding resistance, certainly for Native Americans, I mean, in your case, particularly for the Creeks. And so I'm wondering, you know, how did your sources give you clearly that evidence to be able to, you know, really tell that story in the way that you do, um, you know, and explaining literally this history of, of land and changes and outsiders coming to this land and, you know, kind of how did, how did that kind of, the sources basically inform your writing and understanding of that agency, um, you know, of the creeks? Well, it's, it's a great question. I mean, you know, the one of the things that is very challenging, I think, for many historians, but particularly those of us who study um, populations that did not leave an extensive written record, um, mm-hmm. one of the real challenges is to to isolate, to recognize, to honor those voices um, mm. when they appear. And a lot of times right. that requires us to do what, you know, we often call reading against the grain in, in documentary mm. sources, um, right. you know, which is just sort of a, a fancy way of saying that, you know, we're looking at, at the silences and the sort of absences in, in a lot of these records, um, what doesn't get said or what, what seems to be implied um, right. in order to try and, uh, recognize American Indian people in this case, um, but also people of African descent, as I, I try to mm-hmm. talk about as well in the book, but to, to right. recognize their um, their role in shaping this space. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that, that helped me was, since I had worked to try and understand some Creek cosmological beliefs about space, about territory, boundaries, travel, mobility, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was I I believe that helped me in um, analyzing some of the other documentary materials. It helped me to be able to recognize when, for example, a Creek headman from a particular town was making a reference to a very old genu- you know, a very old concept in Creek thinking, right. um, and how usually he was making use of that concept in his diplomatic um, engagement with, you know, Americans or others. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, some of those references wouldn't necessarily be recognized on the surface as uh, moments of resistance, as you called them. Um, mm-hmm. But when we connect them back to the, this sort of genealogy of thinking about space and thinking about mm-hmm. territory and the freedom to move through territory, then we begin to see that what, what might at first look like a comment about whether or not Americans have the right to travel this particular path, for example, mm-hmm. is really about who has the right to be in this space, in mm-hmm. the universe, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, unpacking some of that, um, some of the oral tradition about um, space and place and Creek thinking um, helped me to be able to recognize some of those moments of resistance, even when they're embedded or, or otherwise submerged in, um, you know, pretty official-looking documents, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. That actually um, leads me to a, another question. Actually, that uh-huh. kind of um, I think intersects a lot, especially you know when you think about you know your subtitle, you know Indian settlers and slaves, and and how sort of those sort of three entities, if you will, are connected sort of on these you know on these paths and these sort of borders, um, and then of course you know with uh, moments of war, um, and you mm-hmm. talk a lot about especially with the Red Stick War, which you know I think some listeners are probably familiar with a bit, but, you know, for those perhaps who might not be, can you just maybe explain a little bit about, you know, the significance of, you know, such sort of land and geographic borders that, you know, would precipitate warfare mm-hmm. um, in this case? Well, one of the things that um, that was most striking to me and, and got me interested in, in uh, writing this book was when I was working on the, these documents for the digital archive, and I would find records, for example, of surveyors going into Creek Country um, to draw boundary lines between uh, a colony and the creeks or between later the, uh, one of the American states and the creeks. And I, I anticipated that um, the creek leaders with whom these surveyors would engage uh, or interact, I assumed that they would always uh, be opposed to anyone coming in and surveying their lands and you mm-hmm. know, drawing lines and marking boundaries. And what I found was, was quite the opposite, which is that many times they were inviting people in to survey these lines recognizing the utility and the importance of boundaries in order to protect their territory and later their nation, um, and that they weren't uh, interested in stopping access to their land, but in controlling it. Um, And I think the sort of loss of control around the access uh, to the land, in other words, a loss of control about who was allowed to come into Creek space, um, Mm -hmm. is part of what precipitates the Creek War in 1813. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, in in a lot of American history, uh, if the Creek War, the Red Stick War, is mentioned, it's mentioned as a sort of an offshoot of the War of 1812, mm-hmm. um, and is some truth to that in the sense that um, <clears throat> that was part of the larger context of the war, and the Creeks were constantly rumored, rumored to be receiving uh, aid from the British. Um, but I think it's important to think of it as a sort of self-contained event as well, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because right. a lot of what's going on in the Creek War is um, is very much about 
uh, a battle for which worldview is going to um, is going to win out. Mm-hmm. So there are those amongst the Greeks who are um, very much opposed to continued um, making of treaties with the Americans. Um, mm-hmm. They are opposed to greater access for Americans in Creek territory. So more, you know, more Americans traveling on roads through Creek territory, for example. Um, and they're opposed to the kinds of concessions that they see some of their leaders making, or what they believe are concessions. Um, so, uh, and then of course there is, as, as is described in, in some of the wonderful works on the Creek War itself, like um, uh, Joel Martin's Sacred Revolt, for example. This is in many ways also um, a, a contest for um, for the right way to be Creek. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a religious war. It's a civil war in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I try to do in the book is to is to use the battles over paths and territory um, to establish one more context for understanding the war. Not to suggest that it's the only reason why the war um, erupts, uh, right. but that it is, part, it is an important part of the context for the war that maybe previously we haven't quite, um, you know, given as much Im- uh, importance as, as we, we should. So that's, Right. Um, you know, my attempt to make a contribution to the study of the Creek War. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, really but, you know, in terms of thinking about the, the folks who traveled into Creek territory, I mean, this is where the Indian settlers and slaves comes from. I mean, this, of course, is a sort of not-so-subtle homage to, to Daniel Eisner's work um, for the lower Mississippi Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of the things that uh, I try very hard to make clear in the book is that um, Creek history is not self-contained from Southern history. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not separate from the history of slavery, um, right. for example. All of these things must be understood as part of the same story. They're taking place in the same space, and these indiv- these groups of individuals are um, negotiating, uh, sometimes resisting one another, but sometimes collaborating with one another. Indian settlers and slaves on on what it means to live in this space, on who has the right to be here, who has the mm-hmm. right to travel through, uh, who has the right to stay. And, right. Um, and so uh, although the book is primarily about um, Creeks and the Creek Nation in, in this time period, uh, it was very important to me to also really try and integrate the experience of, of um, non-Indigenous uh, settlers who come into the region, and also people of African descent, both enslaved and free, who also um, make their way into this space. Right. Okay. That's interesting. You you mentioned uh, Daniel Usner's work, which um, kind of also makes me think about, you know, how does your work fit into, you know, some of this newer research that's come about, you know, as you mentioned, you know, over the last, you know, 20 years, but then there's really kind of this interesting emergence of new works that have been coming out um, over the last decade, even, mm-hmm. um, that certainly, I think, connect to your work and, and really fit quite nicely. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how some of those intersections work or, or how you sort of see yourself as part of this body of new literature on sort of the Native South? Sure, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be considered among those who are producing some of this amazing work, um, you know, that's been coming out over the past, especially the past 10 years. And, mm-hmm. um, and there is such a wonderful energy right now in, in, in thinking about the Native South and, you know, what does that mean and, um, and how can we participate in, um, for example, Southern history, how can we participate in American Indian history, um, in, in thinking about um, ethno-history. Um, 
my work in many ways is, uh, you know, is, is trying to make um, a contribution to, um, to this literature by, as I suggested before, really trying to firmly integrate uh, some topics and some issues that are often discussed separately, even even still today, you know, often discussed separately. You know, so mm-hmm. for example, we um, there is still a tendency. I think um, there is still a kind of insularity to, for example, the history of slavery. Um, mm-hmm. So even though we are seeing some amazing work come out, um, Christina Snyder's book, for example, on Indian slavery, um, Robbie Etheridge's work. Um, you know, the the <clears throat> there is still a tendency in the his, in thinking about the history of um, enslaved people of African descent in the South to treat that as a sort of separate uh, field of study. For example, mm-hmm. so one of the things I tried to do in my book in, in terms of contributing not only to uh, Southeastern Indian history but the history of the South, um, you know, is to say, well, people of African descent were were forced and um, but also willing travelers in Creek country. So instead of thinking about this as a story of, you know, of slaves being moved in to advance the, the sort of march of the Cotton South, what if we think about it from the perspective of these people of African descent who are traveling through Creek space? What was it like for them? How did they make sense of it? How did the Creeks make sense of these, new, these newcomers in their lands? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in some ways what I've tried to do is to um, contribute to some of this literature uh, that, that talks about, for example, slavery um, in the context of Indian country in the South, but to do it through this lens of, of thinking about spatiality and thinking about territoriality and mobility. Um, so if there's something unique in the book, I, I think, I hope that that's what it is. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, definitely. But I mean, there's there's such a uh, wonderful, as I say, energy in in Native South work these days. Now, there's still, I think, a tendency to focus on, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, <laughs> um, to mm-hmm. focus on uh, big groups. You know, so I'm mm-hmm. talking about the Creeks, uh, for right. example. And I think there's still a tendency to write about um, Cherokees and Creeks probably more frequently than some of the other groups, although that's changing. Um, right. And so, you know, one of the other trends that's really worth paying attention to um, is, is, for example, Joshua Piker's book on Okfuski, and it really sort of taking a very micro level and saying, um, let's go down on the village level and, mm-hmm. and try to get a better understanding of what's going on in Indian country in this, in this time period by um, getting away from these large constructs of confederacies and nations and that sort of thing and getting right down on the level of human experience. Uh, I, I think that, and I'd be delighted to see um, more of that kind of approach in um, mm-hmm. Native South studies as, as we move forward. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know uh, we've spoken offline uh-huh. about uh, you know how some of this connects, I think, to some of your current work. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about you know how do your interests continue um, as sure. you begin you know your new study that you're working on. Well, um, you know, as I said at the outset of the interview, I um, I never anticipated that I would write a book about roads and travel, um, but but maybe you know parts of my life were, were had set me on that course <laughs> long ago. Um, so it seems like I'm continuing on that course in some ways because the book I'm working on currently is is 
framed very much by um, travel on rivers. So this is if that was my if Creek Pass was my road book, this is my river book. <laughs> um, I've, I've moved forward into the 19th century, um, so I'm, I'm traveling on steamboats with my subjects um, instead of you know on horseback or, or on foot on the on the Creek Pass. Um, so in brief, what I'm what I'm researching now is um, the life of a couple. Uh, he was born Warner McCary. He was born um, a slave in Mississippi in Natchez in about 1810. Um, he, after he's manumitted, he goes on to travel around the country, even into Canada, um, forms a new persona for himself, and becomes quite famous as the Choctaw flutist uh, Okatebi. Um, he joins up in his 30s with a woman who claims to be the daughter of a Mohawk chief. Um, she goes by the name La Seal Manitoy and La Tubby, quite an um, elaborate name. Uh, mm-hmm. It turned out to be one of many aliases. She was, um, mm. she was a white Mormon divorced mother of three um, mm. and not the Mohawk princess that she claimed to be. Um, mm. This pair crafted a really complex set of alternate personas for themselves. Um, performing mm-hmm. as Indians on stage and musical shows um, in uh, sort of reform context, temperance, for example, uh, but also as as patent medicine doctors, as medical providers, they had um, one constant in their careers, which they were professional Indians. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was their guise uh, or disguise, um, mm-hmm. no matter what their other vocation was at the time. <laughs> you know, whether it was musical mm-hmm. performer or medical doctor. So mm. um, I've, I'm essentially using the, their lives as an optic for understanding race, ethnicity, uh, religion, and popular culture in the mm. antebellum period with, uh, you know, sort of trying to make clear that Indianness or the idea of Indians and Indianness uh, was central to the U.S. Um, and, and Canada um, uh, in terms of thinking about um, at race and ethnicity, and in terms of thinking about um, popular culture and health and wellness, that at, at the central, um, the, the sort of central core here, Indianness was everywhere. And mm-hmm. of course, this is at the same time that removal is taking place, or has just taken place, removal of Eastern Indians to a territory west of the Mississippi River. Um, so I'm trying to work all of this together, along with an amazing story that this couple. Um, left to me. I, I couldn't make this up if I if I wanted to. <laughs> I'm not imaginative <laughs> enough or a good enough fiction writer to ever be able to come up with a story um, more outrageous and, and fascinating than their lives. Wow. No, it sounds fascinating and I'm I'm definitely looking forward to seeing, you know, how you, you know, contribute and build upon, you know, Daniel Littlefield and, mm-hmm. you know, we've spoken about this and I think it'll be a really, really interesting uh work to read. So I definitely can't wait to hear when it, it will be published. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I do want to thank you for again taking time to speak with me today and I certainly want to encourage all of our listeners to check out your first monograph. Creek Paths and Federal Roads, Indians, Settlers, and Slaves, and the Making of the American South. Again, thank you very much for your time, and I'll certainly be following up with you soon. All right. Thanks, Erica. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. You've been listening to the interview podcast featuring Angela Pulley-Hudson, author of Creek Paths and Federal Roads, 
Indians, Settlers and Slaves, and the Making of the American South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2010. For more information, you can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com or on Facebook to post comments or questions about books or themes that you'd like to hear discussed. I'm Erica Easley-Hauser, and thank you again for joining us at New Books in Native American Studies.